Podcast Network Asia. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Tanya Rolf, who looks like she's on a beach, but probably isn't, a co-founder and managing partner at Her Capital. Tanya, how are you doing today? I'm very well. I'm hot in Singapore today, but I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's about the same in Bangkok. I think it's about 35 degrees here today. Mm. Luckily, my commute is about a three-minute walk across the street, so not a lot of pain for me. <laughs> my commute is currently a five-second walk from the bedroom <laughs> to the lounge room because we are in a semi-lockdown again. Oh, no. I guess there's a lot of red tape around that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which people can figure out on their own what that means. Can you give our audience a bit of your background for context? Sure. Um, thank you. I am Tanya from, and I'm originally from London. Okay. And I've been in Singapore for just over four years now. And previously, prior to moving from London, I worked in major international law firms, first in the real estate legal teams. And then I moved into more sort of business management of corporate M&A teams oh, wow. um, in London and Australia. And then moved to Singapore 2017. And I had two babies, one newborn and one year and a half, and decided that um, law firms were no longer for me, not just because of the babies, but because of the rigidity and my sort of free spirit, shall we say. Right. And so decided to do something different. And I set up uh, the Ladies Investment Club, also known as LIC. And then that sort of evolved organically into setting up a venture capital fund here in Singapore. So I want to get to that in a second, but you can't have two babies alone. <laughs> I, I know that sounds like a, like stating the obvious, but it obviously has an impact. Like when you were pregnant, I presume you were still going to work and stuff like that. Do you notice differences in the way people treat you at a law firm when it's clear to them that you're pregnant? In London, Yes and no. Okay. I think openly no, because there's a lot of employment law in, in Europe, as, oh. as we were at the time, part mm -hmm. of the European Union. So a lot of employment. So, so no kind of, oh, we're going to sideline you now, Tanya. Right. But the reality is, is that law firms are heavily dominated by male partner, you know, male partners. And Part of the reason why I do what I do today is because of, in no small part, because of the biases, both conscious and unconscious, that I experienced and saw in, in law firms. Right. I mean, look, I worked in investment, not investment banking, but I worked in investment banks for 20-something years, almost two and a half decades. The reason why I ask about the law firm is I've never worked at a law firm, but I've worked on a trading floor for years. And... The number of sort of high-powered female traders was lower than it was for male traders. And I think it comes from the same background. There's a, both a conscious and an unconscious bias. And, you know, it's, it was clear to me back then that as my friends start getting married, their careers didn't suffer, but their wives, who were also career ladies, that their careers did suffer from merely just changing their family status, but also when they started having children. Is that a fair assessment, you think? Yes. Yes. Female lawyers that were pre-children were often referred to as the best lawyers in the team, the best lawyers the team had. All of a sudden, 
became mediocre once they were, not once they were pregnant, but once they returned from maternity leave because obviously priorities have shifted somewhat. And even women that are completely dedicated to their careers still cannot just stay in the office 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 p.m., etc. You know, there has to be a popping home and dealing with what they need to deal with before starting work again. And even that, you know, degree of flexibility was was a challenge for a lot of um, the partners to accept. So it becomes untenable for female lawyers, I think, um, working in private practice anyway. And a lot of them actually end up going in-house to, you know, private companies or dropping out and changing careers. Yeah. I mean, so so I did an interview with the head of Microsoft's kind of work business in Singapore last week. I'll be publishing that this week. And one of the things that she said is they did, they did a work index study. And one of the things that they found is that the pandemic, because a lot of people are now working from home, that a lot of the caregiving that had gone to sort of childcare or other places came back on the females that were in the household and was Mm -hmm. more detrimental to them than it was to their male partners. Statistically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But we're very lucky in Singapore as well, because we have a lot more home help than we certainly do in the UK where I'm from. So the impact is softened somewhat, but still, um, if you're talking about homeschooling and, and, and all of the things that, you know, uh, that's a full-time job. Yeah, And then sure. you've got your full-time job. It's a crazy, crazy amount of pressure on, on women, I think, following um, COVID. I, I read a study recently, um, an article, sorry, about um, in the medical profession and how during COVID, so during 2020, mm-hmm. Uh, one, I think it was in the UK, one of the medical organizations had received so few insights and reports from female doctors. You know, often they do doctors write specialist reports and they submit them into the medical journals, et cetera. And they were saying that this article was saying that there was so few from women because not because there were no longer any women doctors, but where were all the women doctors? They were taking care of you know, the many things that they have to do in, in the home, unfortunately. And I think that there were still this very similar rates of submissions of papers from, from male doctors. So you could clearly see there was a, a disparity between who was affected by yeah. COVID. So, yeah, not, not surprising, unfortunately. I want to talk about the founding of the Ladies Investment Club, right? Because it's, it's not something that you were already doing, right? You weren't involved in the investment business. What was the thing that led you to found Lick? I love the name of this thing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can talk about how it became, <laughs> maybe that's part of your free spirit thing. We're like, I think I'm going to name this something kind of funny. But what, like, what was the founding of this like? And then how did it turn into her? Yeah. So this is a very basic story, but I... Obviously, was in Singapore. These two very small children. What am I going to do? And I started to make a one or two personal investments into various companies. And I decided, actually, you know, this is great fun. I really enjoy this. I had left London with a huge amount of fire in my belly for gender equality. Okay. Because of what I experienced in the law firms, and I actually, in one of the firms I was in, I I did a study on where all the women were going. So it was female female lawyer retention. 
And I came away from, from London to Singapore with this fire in my belly, started making these couple of personal investments and realized that there was this huge underrepresentation of women that was receiving funding. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't work out why, because when you look at the data, it's like, okay, it's not like they're not performing. So why is this? Right. So I dug a bit deeper and I realized there was just no female, very few female investors. So I was like, okay, this is, this makes sense. One of the things I did miss from my corporate days, one of the very few things was people. You know, I, I think fondly back to being at the last law firm I was in in the UK and going to get a tea from the kitchen and just bumping into two, three, four buddies yeah. and having a good 10 minute chat and, and banter. I miss the banter. I miss the kind of camaraderie and the events, the social events. I mean, we all miss those at the moment, but, and, and so I thought, how can I do, how can I combine all of these things? How can I combine my passion for supporting women with working with other people, but still maintaining autonomy and flexibility and not being told, you know, you need to be in the office at 8 a.m. and you can't leave until 6 p.m., right. which was never going to work for me because I wanted my cake and I wanted to eat it, basically. And I thought, no one's going to tell me that I can't. So I wanted to be there to drop the children at preschool and I wanted to take them swimming on a Friday afternoon if I wanted to. But I wanted to be intellectually challenged and learning and I wanted to work. So how could I combine all of these things? And that's where Lick came from. How did you get the other? First of all, I want to know, how did you find the, the initial companies in which you invested maybe prior to founding Lick? In other words, did you go to Tech in Asia events? Did you go to Echelon events? You're in Singapore. So it's a hotbed for investment. How did you find them? How did you get introduced to all that stuff first? Okay. I wish I could say I was that sophisticated at that early on, but I, I was three months in Singapore, three months into my investing career. So I don't think I knew what Echelon was <laughs> or Rice or any of those Asia right. tech conferences. I essentially met probably about 4 million out of the 5 million population in Singapore for coffees. It certainly felt that way. And I basically just hustled and, and met people both to become members mm -hmm. of the, of the group, but also to, for investment opportunities. So they, I started, you know, on LinkedIn, creating a, a LinkedIn page right. and, and announcing our arrival, which as you can imagine to female founders who are usually faced with a sea of 50 something year old white men, <laughs> you know, having us turn up was quite intriguing for yeah, them. Yeah, it must have been refreshing, um, if nothing else. Yeah. yeah. I said it must have been refreshing. Very refreshing. Very refreshing. Yeah. It, yeah. I think, I think it was very attractive for the founders. So that's how I got the first few deals. Okay. In actual fact, the very first deal we invested in, the founder lived on my street and someone introduced me to her over like a glass of wine. Right. So that's how we started to invest. And honestly, I, I literally put adverts out saying I was doing this, uh, doing this, you know, building this group of people of, of investors who wants to join. And actually the very first message I sent to get going on this journey was I had literally been in Singapore for three months. So I didn't know anyone other than a few mums that right. were had been at the baby classes where I had been. Right. But it, it, it took 
me only a couple of weeks to realize that Singapore is full of smart, educated women who have often come to Singapore with their husbands and were similar age to me, so all having children. So we're, we're not currently working, but still had, you know, a good brain and and, and an ambition. So I thought, okay, this is an opportunity. So this is rather embarrassing, but I joined a WhatsApp group for, I lived on Sentosa in, in Singapore, which is this island off the island. Right. And it's heavily expat community. Yes. Um, and I sent a message to the Sentosa mums WhatsApp chat. I love it. That was the very first thing I did. And I got about 15 women who wanted to come along and have a coffee and hear my pitch. And then a few of them became members. What were those first conversations like? So you're sitting around a table with a bunch of other ladies that are probably from Sentosa, not from, but live on Sentosa as well. It's an interesting community there, right? For people that haven't been there. You've got to go over this bridge. There's a guard at the corner there. Like there's just, it's a really neat place actually. What were some of those conversations like? Were they like, are you really going to do this? Because they must have been motivated to do it as well. But, you know, some people, male or female, it's irrelevant. Or generals and some people are soldiers and you need great soldiers as well. Yeah. You need people that are just out there pounding the ground for stuff and then somebody to organize it. Yeah. What were some of those first conversations like? Uh, It was a mixed bag. I mean, there were a couple of ex-investment banking ladies there who were asking me a ton of difficult questions. You know, what about this? What about that? Blah, blah, blah. And I was, well, this is just an idea that I just sent one message, like, hold your horses. (laughs) Slow down. (laughs) Yeah. Back off. I don't have all the answers yet. This is just an idea and I'm just sort of trying it out. Then there were, you know, a number of women that wanted to start businesses themselves. So they were just coming along to find out more. And there was one or two that were, you know, in almost exactly the same position as myself and were on board from the get go. But it was really, really slow. And I must say that I felt like giving up many times because I just thought, okay, actually, this is really hard. The funny thing is, is that building anything is hard, right? Whether you're man or woman, building anything from scratch, starting something that has, especially when you're pioneering, right? There was no other group like this in, in the region. You couldn't copy anything like there was, because it didn't exist, right? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought, okay, well, it's difficult to know how hard is too hard. So it's, everyone says, this is really hard. And I'm like, yeah, it's really hard, but I'm not making progress. So it was very difficult to constantly checking in with myself with, okay, is it too hard? Because it's a nuts idea, Tanya. Right. And I thought that many, many times, but kept persevering. Uh, maybe because I just didn't want to go back to a law firm. Maybe that was my motivation. But there must have been a tipping point, and I hate to use that phrase, but there must have been a point where you said, this is really hard, but everything is hard. I know myself from just trying to build a business from scratch, which frankly, I had never done before either. And maybe like you, <laughs> you know, if you called from one of your fancy international law firms and said, hi, this is Tanya Rolf, I'd like to do something, they just listen to you, right? I did this when I was at Goldman Sachs. Hi, it's Michael Waits from Goldman Sachs. It opened every door. And as soon as I left that business in 2011, I just made the same phone calls. Hi, this is Michael Waits. And they're like, click. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, it wasn't me. But it takes a while to figure that out. But then it also takes a while to figure out, again, how do you get over these hard hurdles? 
when do I decide not to give up kind of thing? And do you remember that feeling of, wait, I just made one little forward step of progress. Now I'm definitely not stopping. (laughs) I distinctly remember every time it was a weird situation because I was essentially reaching out to people and saying, hey, do you want to come and listen to my story and and come and join my club? Right. And these insanely smart women, like way smarter than me, like would rock up with an amazing CV and it would be like an interview process. Like they were, I was interviewing them because obviously I'm asking questions about their motivations and their interests, et cetera. And so it would become this, yeah, interview style conversation. And I would just keep pinching myself and thinking, oh my goodness, what am I, like I'm interviewing, like Them? looking at this resume, like <laughs> what the heck? So I kept, and then, and then every single time at the end, they would say, I'd love to join. Like I really want to come on board. And every time I would walk away and go, okay, I'm doing something right. Like I've got something yeah. here that these smart women that I, you know, hugely admire wants to come and join me and my idea. Right. But this is the amazing part to me, at least about building something from scratch, particularly in a place that's greenfields, right? Where nothing else like what you're trying to build exists. So just the fact that you want to do it means that people are going to want to join. And once you do it, you are the expert, you are the pioneer. And from then on being the first mover, you have all this sort of embedded credibility and gravitas that allows you to do things that maybe you didn't think were possible before, but now are eminently possible. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think when you're building anything that hasn't gone before, it's I, I always refer to it as a, a blessing and a curse. So it's a blessing because it the opportunity is huge. Yeah. Whenever you're doing something, you know, pioneering, it, you, the opportunity is huge. You're a first mover. The curse is that humans are naturally very you know, I think, and particularly women, we're very prudent with risk management. And we, you know, we like to see somebody else doing this first, Uh, we, we being people, not not women. But Mm. and so there's always an education that has to happen. So it's not just, hey, I'm developing this investment business, and it's exactly like A, B, and C, right. and we're just going to do exactly what they did, which was X, Y, and Z. Yep. It, there, there wasn't any of that. It was constant, like, so I'm thinking this, and this is what I'm thinking, and it's all about what I'm thinking um, it's going to look like. Right. So there's no precedent. And so there's a constant story to be told and education to and, and get people on board, which is a bit of a curse because – it's it's a challenge and everyone wants to jump on board when they see everyone else already on board. Right. I mean, look, it's difficult to get to a destination if there's no roadmap, right? Yeah. And yeah. it makes it more exciting, but it also makes it more challenging. Do you want to know how I collaborate with some of the best brands in the world at Asia Tech Podcast? I use Podmetrics. This is the best way to connect to your favorite brands and monetize your podcast. If you are a podcaster, you can sign up now at podmetrics.co and use the referral code ASIATECHPODCAST, all one word, to get full control of your show's monetization, regardless of your show's size. And if you're a brand and want to collaborate with the Asia Tech Podcast, head over to advertiser.podmetrics.co 
It's spelled like it sounds. And sign up now. You went through a program, which you mentioned to me offline. You participated in something that was part of the Founder Institute, which you said was also really, really like cheekily difficult. Can you run through that a little bit as well? Because I don't know anything about it. I'm really curious. So the Founder Institute is very well-known accelerator program from California, actually. And last year, during the the launch of the pandemic, they launched a venture capital program um, called VC Lab. Ah, okay. And they ran that in February. I, I think the February cohort was a bit of a particularly challenging because obviously it was exactly the time that COVID was hitting. So right. I think numbers were down, et cetera, et cetera. So I, was, I feel like I was probably in the first major cohort, which went off in July last year. Okay. And yeah, I signed up to that. A good friend of mine in Boston pinged me and said, there's this program, but the you've got to get in your application by tomorrow. So I looked at the application and it was this business case you had to put in. And I was like, oh yeah, right. I'm not going to be able to do that, but okay, I better put something in. So I put something in and it was, you know, a pretty good something. But anyway, they had around a thousand or so applicants and they accepted 200. And fortunately I managed to get in. Good for you. Thank you. And essentially it's a program to develop, educate, develop, want to be venture capitalists. Right. And I learned a lot. It's a 16 week program and each week you have to do a series of assignments. Now the assignments are not actually on top of your day job. So it's not like I was launching the fund and then I had my 20 hours or whatever I was doing for them on top. It's kind of like most of the assignments were the things to get the fund running. Okay. But it was a lot of work, a lot of work. And I'm pleased to say each week culling people. So if you didn't meet the criteria, you were out. Really? Yeah. That's brutal though, right? Sorry? It's brutal. In other words, and you know that's happening. It's not like people are just voluntarily saying, this is too hard. They're just going, hey, you didn't make it. You're out? Like yeah. That? yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. That is harsh. Yeah. So I had this like personal challenge with myself. You know, you're staying in this, Tanya. You're, you're staying to the end. Yeah. And by a stroke of luck, I did. And I think I, were, I, think I was the only person in Asia to make it to the end. Good for you. That's awesome. And only one of like five or so women in the whole program. And I think there was about 30 people that made it to the end. Wow. And do you feel like you came out of this program? I mean, it's interesting the way they do this, if I understand correctly. They're not giving you sort of vanity things to take care of. They're saying, here are the things you need to get your business up and running. Go do that. Is your business now up and running kind of thing as you're moving along through the process, right? So it's not like create a fake company and then pitch that company to us. It's just like, here's what we need to do to start your business. And if you can't get through this, well, then you shouldn't be running a VC firm. Is that fair? Yeah, that sounds very Silicon Valley VC, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure <laughs> does, doesn't it? <laughs> it's cutthroat. Yes, it was. It was exactly like that, uh, which is why I knew I just had to make it because yeah. I have to make, make the business work. So uh, that's exactly how it was. And yeah, at the end of it, you ha- you know, you're hopefully in a position to launch your VC, which we kind of did around the time that 
I, I just around the time I was starting the course, actually, we were perhaps a little bit ahead of ahead of our time at Her Capital. Right. So did you raise external funding or is this a principal fund where it's really just like your money and the other teammates money as well? You, do you mean as part of that course? No, just as part of running Her Capital. Oh, um, well, we, we're raising, we were raising 10 million. So definitely external capital as well. <laughs> wow. And did you do that? Uh, the race continues. Okay. But that's great though. But you're still operating and you've invested in how many companies so far? So actually we're still pretty early on. We yep. just started investing this year, Good stuff. but we have a number of deals that we did under ladies investment club okay. that we, we continue to manage um, now, you know, once we became her capital. So this year we've invested in, we invested into two HR tech companies okay. in Asia. Okay. So I want to ask you if you work with other companies, actually, I want to back up and, and ask you another thing first. So men seem to have built a ton of infrastructure, whether, whether purposely or, or not purposely around networking, like the chambers of commerce in different places and kind of other industry associations. Should women build their own? Do you know what I mean? Just like just their own association so that there's a pure networking thing for women. And part of the reason why I ask this is if you're the first non- What's the right word? In other words, if you walk into a room of dogs, let's say, because there's no political problems with dogs, but if you're a human and you walk into a room with all dogs, you're like, oh, maybe I don't belong in this room, even if the dogs invite you in kind of thing. In other words, do you want to walk into a room that's not diverse and try to bolt diversity on, or do you want to start from scratch and create a diverse group? And maybe on top of that, like, do you work with other companies to do this like diversely and even connecting founders, which also invest in female founders almost exclusively. And then once you create this group of diversity, you have your own sort of network ability without the necessity to use the existing infrastructure. Do you know what I mean? I I do understand. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, actually. Neither do I, Um, but but I'm just saying, go ahead. Yeah, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And I think both need to be tackled. So my view is this. I have a largely female team and we support female founders, yep. but actually the reality is that I don't want to be in a, I don't want to be in a company and I don't want to be in uh, at, at an event or in any working, any working environment where it's made up of only one sex, Yeah, good point. Um, be that female or male. Like I, I've been, probably the only female in a room full of male legal partners. I know what that feels like. Right. And it's not a cool place to be. It's not a healthy place to be. Nope. And I've also been, you know, I've also been, you know, we have a lot of females in the team and we invest into a lot of female founded companies. And again, I think that that's not, you know, it's not perfect either. I think that it's a balance and we strive to achieve that balance. We have a number of, of male um, advisors. Yep. And I think that there, there does exist already a number of female support groups, female networking groups, et okay. cetera, et cetera. I think that we can always have more and I'm a big advocate of that. But I, and, and I'm a big advocate also of penetrating the existing ecosystems that exist. But you know, it, the truth be told that 
it's been meant like if we're looking at venture capital, for example, nothing has really changed other than we've actually gone backwards when it comes to venture capital for, for women. So it would be naive to just say, no, 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 we don't need special events or programs for women. We should just, you know, infiltrate the existing ecosystems and everything will be great. It, it doesn't happen. You know, it, it's, it's not like we can just turn around and say, hey, Southeast Asia's VC ecosystem, right. can you just start investing more fairly and into some women and, and you know, let's increase this to two, three percent. It doesn't work. It's naive. And it doesn't work to to just say, well, we're women. We're going to do this on our own. Um, we don't need men. That's ridiculous as well. Right. Um, so I, I think we can do the two side by side and hope that things change. I think that the rate at which we're changing is too slow. Feels really slow. Look, I want to reference a I want to reference an article that I read in the Harvard Business Review entitled Women-Led Startups Received Just 2.3% of VC Funding in 2020. And it's pretty obvious what this is about. It's in the title. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like You don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure this one out. But what's more interesting to me than the title is that that's actually down from 2019's numbers, which were an all-time high of 2.8%, which still feels like comically low to me. Yeah. Can you talk yeah. about this? Sorry, go ahead. I want you to also talk about the cycle of things that need to change from venture capitalists into female founders. And I agree with you. I don't think you want to have live on this island, no pun intended, where it's just females dealing with females. Because I think if you're part of the larger ecosystem, you can have a much bigger impact. But what needs to change in this cycle of investors, partners at big investment firms being female, because that's also still way too low, Right and into founders and in those founders then having exits and having them then turn into investors how does all that work how do you see that working i think it's a multifaceted approach that's Absolutely. needed in my view and so so going back to your stat first of all that 2.8% that you mentioned in 2019 mm-hmm. was the same in 2012 so 7 years it didn't move <laughs> so 7 years we didn't Ugh. increase money to female founders and then COVID hit and we went backwards. Right. So we are almost 10 years we've gone, we haven't advanced, we've actually gone backwards in, in over a 10 year period. Right. So if you think about that, that rate of supposed improvement and, and awareness, where do we think we're going to be when let's say my four-year-old daughter is 24 and just out of university? We're not going to be really anywhere different than we are today. So I think uh, the people that believe that we shouldn't be talking about this issue and raising awareness of it, or, you know, believe it has negative connotations attached to it. It's just absurd because if we don't address it, we, we, you know, we're going nowhere, literally nowhere. And then when you look at the, how do we improve it? So like I said earlier, um, you know, it, for me, the answer to increasing diversity at founder level always, always lies in increasing diversity at capital allocator level. So the fund managers, the people that are deciding the investment decision makers, the people at my level, me. But so that's where I think our attention should be. But then where do those fund managers like me get their money from? Because 
they raise capital or I raise capital from institutions. And institutions are not giving that much money, if anything, to you know, new managers to emerging managers. Yeah. This is, it's so hard to raise your first fund. It's like so hard. Go ahead. Yeah. But it's super hard for men and women, right? I know many men raising their first fund and also having exactly the same challenges as, as I've got. Right. So it's, it's not so much a gender problem, but, but if we are going to address this gender agenda, this gender problem, then we have to be able to find a way for the fund managers to, you know, receive funding to raise their funds. If we don't have, and actually the, there's 2.4%, I think, of fund managers are female globally. Yeah. So it's tiny. It's almost the same amount of how much funding goes to female founders, right? I, there could be a direct correlation there. I mean, I'm not Sherlock Holmes or anything, but... <laughs> One could speculate that that right. could be the case. Right. So diversity at fund at fund manager level is is my focus. So and the biggest challenge is that we go up to the institutions and we say, "Hey, institutions, you know, you, we we're we're raising this fund. We're first time fund managers. It's a small fund because we've, you know, this is our first time. This is our strategy. We may be investing into." black founders in the US or, you know, Latino founders or female founders, whatever the strategy is. And then the, the institutions are often saying, no, there's, you know, your fund's too small, your fund's too new. We can't give you any money. Come back to us when you're raising a hundred million and you're on your second fund. Right. Well, yeah, that's great advice. And we'll definitely do that. But let's just hope that we get there to, to you know, to raise that second fund because, Raising a first fund, not from institutions, so from individuals, let's say, you need a whole lot of individuals to give you money to raise a fund if people are giving you much smaller checks than an institution can. Right. So it's a chicken and egg situation. So we need, we need institutions to look at their internal investment practices, you know, because often they say they want to invest into female founders. They want to be part of making a difference, but then they're, actual mandate, their investment mandate doesn't permit them from investing into those funds that where the where they could make a difference. So that needs to happen. Of course, women are 51% of the population. They open almost 40% of all businesses globally right. and receive that two or 3% of VC funding. But we have to be realistic. We're never going to reach parity on that because, you know, there are large parts of the world where, you know, the fight is not uh, can women receive access, equal access to VC funding? But can women get an education? Right. Can women drive a car? Right. You know, huge parts of the world where we still have massive inequality in that way. So, you know, I think I think we have to be realistic about what we're we're looking to achieve. But in the Western developed world, which is obviously where what I'm focused on with fund is, how do we get more women into tech? How does and 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 I think the the answer lies in it's it's a similar situation to women in finance and women and and women in in law like you pointed out it's a very they're all three of those very male you know heavily male dominated how are those appealing to women right. you know what am I going to do when I'm older oh well, let me go and look at this law firm or let me look at you know I want to be in deep tech oh hang on a second I'm I'll be the only woman in the 
in the course or in the, you know, in partnership team, whatever. Well, you know, I don't really want to be in that environment. That doesn't sound very healthy. So it's a slow change. And I, I see it happening for sure. I see more women in tech, but there is also a misconception that there's not enough female founders. I get that all the time in this part of the world. I'm questioned on how many, are there even female founders in, in Asia? Do they exist, particularly in tech? I'm saying, well, yeah, they do. You just don't see them because they don't come knocking on your door because why would they? Because clearly, you know, most funds are not investing into you know, many female founders. And the other point, which is my last point on your, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. No, but I like it. This my is why I wanted you on actually. <laughs> is I, and this is very personal to me. I have a four-year-old daughter right. and I have a just turned six-year-old son. And there's 18 months difference between them. And, and actually they, they look very similar. I'm often asked if they're twins. They're going to come out of university at roughly the same time. Basically. Yeah. And, and what's going to happen? You know, that they're watching me build a business. They're watching me, um, work with startups and hustle. And I suspect that, you know, they're going to get a bit of an entrepreneur kind of interest themselves. Sure. What if they both turn around to me at 23 and 24 and say, Hey, mama, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start a business. And I say, yay. You know, great, great news. And, and my daughter's, you know, going to say, well, hang on a second, mom. I paid a fortune for our education here in Singapore. Right. Both went to these great schools. <laughs> you shipped us off to the UK for university. This is all great. But you didn't tell me that, you know, I've got access to 2.3% of VC funding or whatever it is we're at at the time in 20 years' time. Yeah, she's absolutely right. What, how's that conversation going to go? Right, because um, cause if so, nothing, because if nothing changes, sorry to interrupt you, but if nothing yeah. changes, your six-year-old son, who's eighteen months older than your four and a half-year-old daughter, will, in relative terms, waltz into entrepreneurship <laughs> and at the same level raise capital and look at his sister and just go, "What's wrong with you?" Kind of thing. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. wrong, right? That's the yeah. thing that needs to get fixed or one of the things that needs to get fixed. I interrupted you. Sorry. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. But as a, as a mother of a son, jo- my job is to ensure that everyone talks about, you know, empowering young girls. I, I see a lot of young girls with, there's no empowerment issues there. No. They're fully empowered. And I look at my daughter, there's, there's enough empowerment there for, you know, her entire school class. Right. She, she's good on that front. What's important is to raise my son to see her as his equal. Exactly. That's the important job that I want to make sure I get right. Yeah, because look, we need a, a generation of boys to not see their sisters or their friends in their class as anything other than equal. Yeah. I mean, I have a 20-year-old daughter and she is not a shrinking violet either. Mm. And she doesn't need to be empowered. And we've taught her her whole life. There's nothing you can't do. Like that's been a mantra that she's been told. And we didn't even really need to tell her that because if you knew her, (laughs) she's going to run some people over. But you're right. It's not her problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's her peers problem when they look at her. And most of them do. Because again, she had kind of the same type of education as your children are having. She went to the new international school of Thailand here, which is, you know, equivalent to UWC or whatever in Singapore. And 
you know, it's a great place to be, but what they don't know and what nobody teaches them is that when they leave that environment, when they leave that bubble, the world is very different because everybody has not been educated the same way they have. And when they get out in the real world, they're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. I didn't know I was going to get treated like that because I've never been treated like that before. Yeah. 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 It's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. I think that it, we've definitely got a opportunity. I think I think COVID has helped significantly, okay. although it's set women back. I think it actually has refocused minds now and much more open to a lot of things, including how do we support women? And, and the biggest challenge, I think, is that a lot of corporations, a lot of institutions, they all think that you know we should give women more mentoring, office hours you know, support a lot of, you know, coffee mornings. And, you know, I just want to say that women don't actually need those things any more than men, you know, entrepreneurs. And so what they want is just equal access to capital. It's that simple. Yeah. I think that's a great way to end actually. (laughs) I really do. I think it's great. I cannot tell you how much I thank you for coming on and doing this. I love the work that you're doing. Tanya Rolf, a co-founder and managing partner at Her Capital. How can people contact you, whether they're founders, potential LPs? How can people get in touch with you? Uh, LinkedIn, Tanya Rolf. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Great. Uh, yeah, that's probably the best way. Perfect. Thank you again, Tanya, for coming on and doing this. Thank you, Michael. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.